This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on infant toddler development. And this is a training that's going to take place over multiple parts. Today is part one. It's kind of your introductory part that we're going to be taking a look at. Um, and for a lot of you who are, are counselors, you may be kind of wondering, why are we doing infant toddlers? Because we don't work with them. Well, sometimes we do. and when my son was born, he was a micro preemie, and my daughter was as well, but not quite as micro. So we were immediately, you know, involved with the early intervention counselors that were at the hospital, which was a blessing for us because, you know, I'd never been a parent before, let alone a parent of a micro preemie. So there were a lot of things that I needed to learn, that I needed to understand, and they were so helpful. Um, so after... My kids grew up a little bit. Uh, I actually went through the early intervention training and became an early intervention counselor because I saw that it was really helpful to parents to be able to understand what their kids are going through and be able to be calmed down um, if they're going, oh, my kid's not talking yet. Um, just to share, my, my son, the micro um, he was, golly, um, 19 months old, something like that, and he was, still wasn't talking. I mean, he would use signs, but he still wasn't verbalizing, and I was freaked out. So we went to the pediatrician and for his for his checkup, and this, our pediatrician had eight kids, so you know nothing really phased him. And you know, I said, "Doc, he's not talking yet." And the pediatrician looks at me, and he goes, "Is he getting his needs met?" I was like, of course he's getting his needs met. And the doctor was like, well, then he has no reason to talk. So chill. And I think he actually did use those words. Um, and, and so I was like, okay, well, that, that kind of makes sense. And sure enough, as soon as he started preschool, um, you know, he started talking and kind of never has been quiet since. But he just didn't need to speak. So we don't want to pathologize something that may not be pathologizing. And sometimes parents just need a little bit of, you know, um, confidence in, in what may be going on and what's typical and what's atypical. Because just like, you know, if we get an ache or a pain or something and we go on WebMD, oh my gosh, you know, the sky could be falling because they, it seems like the worst possible things come up. 
same thing for parents when they start looking at some of these websites about these are the developmental milestones and if your kid's not meeting that um, he may have developmental delays or autism or this or that well he may but chances are for, for the majority of kids that that's not going to be the case so we want to take a look at that and you know the first let's see seven years that I worked in uh, clinic I worked on a mother-baby unit. So we had women that were coming in and they were hopefully at that point pregnant and so they could deliver a drug-free baby. And then they would stay with us six months postpartum in order to develop the skills and resources and stuff they needed. So we were always on the lookout for developmental delays in that particular setting too. So today we're going to talk about child development, and atypical child development, and why it might be hard to spot. We'll explore each of the major domains of child development kind of briefly, and if you want to stick around at the end, we'll go into it more in depth. We'll identify the typical sequence of child development and explain how culture impacts development. We'll identify factors that may lead to atypical development and developmental signals that indicate a possible developmental delay or problem. And finally, we'll explain the effects of developmental disorders on child development in general and the family, because it's so important to remember that this little being is not existing in a vacuum. So this little being impacts the family, and as Brof and Brenner would point out, the family impacts the little being. So, you know, we have to help parents who may be under excessive stress and, um, one of the risk factors for postpartum depression in moms and dads is if they have a child who is born prematurely or has some sort of um, health issue and they're identified as somewhat fragile physically, um, or if the child has obvious developmental delays from beginning, it can be very stressful for the parents. So we need to help the parents cope in order to make them emotionally available for the child. So with no further ado, child development is a normal progression by which children change as they grow by acquiring and refining knowledge, behaviors, and skills. They start out not doing much. And I was in the lobby waiting for my kids to get out of martial arts yesterday, and there was a little baby in there. And it was, it was so funny because doing this class, I'm more aware of it again. And... I would, you know, wave with my fingers, and she would wave, try to wave back with her fingers. I would shake my leg, she would start to shake her leg. And she was, she's very into that Im imitation stage at this point. Um, so they, they start figuring things out. And what they can and can't do, you know, really changes. And it's one of those things, you know, some parents will try to get their baby to hold their own bottle and drink their own bottle from you know, when they're way, way young, not realizing that being able to reach across the midline of your body to hold a bottle or something and exchange between hands, that's actually a pretty advanced skill. So, you know, children can't do that when they're, you know, really, really young. So what do we want to assess? We want to look at five specific areas, their motor and physical development. Can they developmentally appropriately control their body? And, you know, there's a range of what's normal, if you will. Um, you know, can they hold their head up? Can they um, 
pass things between hands? Can they, you know, do these different things? And we want to make sure that we're looking at the child's um, developmental age, not necessarily their chronological age. And what that means for preemies is, like, my son was almost three months premature. So when he was three months old, he was actually zero developmentally. That's, you know, when he was supposed to be coming out. And so you didn't want to assume that he should be doing all the things a three-month-old should do when he was actually had been out of the womb for three months. Uh, So we do want to take that into account and make sure parents understand. And that amount of time, you know, that the child was premature or whatever, as the child grows, is going to have less and less of an impact. Because, you know, three months now that he's 18 is not a big deal. Three months when he's six months old, well, that's half of his life. So we want to help parents understand that. We're going to look at cognitive development. Social and emotional, their communication and their language, and their self-help or adaptive behaviors. And obviously, when they're young, self-help and adaptive behaviors are going to be more like crying. And, you know, as children get a little bit older, when they start getting tired, they'll start pulling on their ear. And they have these different uh, motions that they do to let us know something needs to be taken care of because they can't articulate it yet. Communication can be very, a lot of it's nonverbal. When children are overwhelmed, they may start yawning. They may avert their eyes. They may get fussy. So we need to understand what they're communicating at a developmentally appropriate level. Three generally accepted principles of child development are that the rate of development differs among children. Development occurs in a relatively orderly process, though. So... You're not going to have a child, you know, reading Shakespeare and feeding himself with a bottle at this point Um, because, you know, there's, there are going to be a relatively orderly process, physical, cognitive, social, emotional, all that stuff progresses kind of together. You know, there's going to be little jigs and jags here, but you're not going to generally have somebody progress cognitively way up here and everything else is down here at two years old. Uh, Now, sometimes with developmental delays, we may see one or more areas get stuck. Um, And then that's when we need to look at trying to intervene because a delay in one area is often going to cause delays in other areas. Uh, And Lisa points out that, and she makes a really good point, that when you have premature twins, and a lot of times twins are premature, the children will reinforce the developmental delays in in each other. Um, So being aware of that and encouraging them to move on, giving them observational observational learning opportunities to see holding your head up and encouraging that. And it's exhausting to be a mother of twins, I would assume. I, I thought it was exhausting to be the mother of a singleton. So, you know, I really have a lot of empathy for for parents who are are parents of multiples. Uh, And the third thing in child development is it takes place gradually. We're not going to wake up one morning and have these leaps and bounds. We're going to have little steps, just like when a child, you know, scoots and then crawls and then pulls himself up on the furniture and then walks with the help of furniture. You know, these are small steps. And the child doesn't go 
and do one of those on Monday and the next one on Tuesday and the next one on Wednesday. It's a progress and it's, it's slow and it's incremental. So we want to give the child time to learn and to adapt. Atypical child development is used to describe when children whose differences in development are to a marked degree or whose development appears to be significantly inconsistent with normal child development. Um, so we really want to look at the degree because you're going to have some children like, like Sean who you know, he didn't speak um, and he communicated just fine. But so it was a little bit inconsistent, but it wasn't. It wasn't huge, and so the pediatrician didn't get real fired up about it. And he also looked at all those other areas that we talked about um, of of development: the motor and physical, cognitive, social, emotional, and self help adaptive. And he was doing just fine. So you know he wasn't overly concerned. Many variations in child development may be explained by cultural life experiences or cultural differences because parental beliefs, child-rearing practices vary across cultures. And we're going to talk about that towards the end of the presentation. But not all parents are having babies down on the floor four or five hours a day and playing with them. Some parents are more into holding their baby and having them swaddled and against them and carrying them most of the time. So the child is not doing as much stuff that is going to strengthen the muscles at a certain age. And, but then there are other parents who are, are very, feel very strongly about lots of floor time, even if the child isn't rolling over yet or whatever. So we do want to look at some of these things. Quantitative differences in child development refer to the changes children encounter as they acquire more knowledge and grow physically. So what do they know and what can they do? And these are things that you can have achievement tests. You can look at what they can do physically. You can mark these checklists. Qualitative differences focus on changes in the way children think, behave, and perceive in the world differently as they mature. So the way a two-year-old reacts to new people is different than the way a seven- or eight-year-old reacts to new people. Um, and, and you also have children progressing from concrete thought and sensory motor thought to formal operational thought. So it has to be there in front of them. It has to be more tangible to they can think about concepts a little bit uh, differently. So that, that's a qualitative difference. They're still thinking about the same thing, but how they're going about it is a little bit different. Nature refers to heredity and characteristics remaining stable through the years. We know this. And nurture refers to the delay to the day-to-day -day interactions children encounter in their environment. One thing we want to remember as um, infant child interventionists, if you will, um, if parents or caregivers believe that the environment has a large influence throughout a child's life, then they're going to make sure children have high-quality experiences past their primary years. We want to help parents understand the importance of the environment. Now, it doesn't have to be the most expensive toys. It doesn't have to be all these things. We want them to have a safe and loving and nurturing environment that's stimulating. And, I mean, think back to your great-great-grandparents. They didn't have all the toys that bleeped and beeped and did all that stuff. They had little dolls that were made out of corn husks and blocks that were made out of wood. 
and they did just fine. So it's not about the expense of the toys or how many toys. It's more about the quality of the interactions and what the child can do. When considering child development, we also have to consider the prenatal period. Any exposure to teratogens, and we're going to, again, talk about that in a minute, but we want to look at was mom drinking when she was pregnant, and especially during that first trimester when she may not have even known she was pregnant, was she, um, was, was she drinking or using drugs? Was she taking any supplements that could have harmed the baby? Did she have adequate nutrition? Babies' bodies and our bodies are built from the foods that we eat. That's, those are the building blocks for making our skin, our brains, everything. So it makes sense that if mom's nutrition is not good, that means what baby's getting is not good, which means baby's development may, may have been a little bit thwarted during that period. The other thing we want to look at in prenatal is the benefit risk of psychotropics. And obviously, that's not a decision we make. That's between the mom and the um, OBGYN. But there's been a lot of research that's shown that in order to prevent postpartum depression in women who are prone to it or who have struggled throughout their pregnancy with depression, uh, a lot of times the benefits outweigh the risks of some. SSRIs in order to stave off or at least um, minimize the impact of postpartum depression in those mothers. Um, most SSRIs are what they call um, class B, which means, you know, they haven't been found to have any negative effect, but we can't test on moms and babies ethically, so they don't know. They're pretty sure looking at rat models. They have done some tests that have evaluated the amount of the certain SSRIs in breast milk to see if it's safe for moms to breastfeed um, while they're on these medications. And overwhelmingly, the information has been yes. So I do have a video on working with parents with postpartum depression on the YouTube channel that you can take a look at if you're interested in that. But so other factors leading to atypical development, why do we need to know this? Well, a lot of us work with parents. So if we find out that this woman we're working with is pregnant, well, that's wonderful. You know, we want to help her make sure that she has the healthiest, happiest pregnancy possible. Um, so we want to be alert. Now, ostensibly, the OBGYN and her doctor and pediatrician are telling her about all the things that she can eat and what she needs to do. Our, our goal is to be aware of some other things. Stress is a big thing. That stress is a big predictor in uh, premature delivery. Illicit and over-the-counter drugs. If we find out that mom is abusing drugs, that may be something we need to be aware of. And even, you know, talking about some drugs, there's been a really strong link between low birth weight, which can contribute to developmental delays, and smoking. So even drugs that we are, are legal can have a significant impact on the baby. We want to make sure that mom's educated about that. And if she's seeking assistance getting off of, you know, stopping smoking or changing those behaviors, then we, we can help intervene. Pesticides and heavy metals. Now, I didn't really realize that mercury and lead, I always think about fish and paint. So those automatically came to mind. But car exhaust 
also contain mercury and lead. So if a mother is inhaling a lot of car exhaust, now that doesn't mean, you know, while you're walking through the parking lot or something, but we do want to make sure that parents are aware of that. Maternal behavior, such as smoking and drinking, maternal diseases while she's pregnant, such as rubella, AIDS, toxoplasmosis, again, another one I didn't know about. I knew you could get it from cat feces. I didn't realize you could get it from undercooked meat. So that's another thing that can affect the development of the fetus. And cytomegalovirus. Again, all of these, the... um, Pediatrician or OBGYN are probably going over with mom, so we don't need to lecture, um, and it's probably best we don't. But it's good for us to be aware about things. So if we find out that this woman who was so happy about her pregnancy suddenly contracted rubella, um, you know, we can be aware that that could potentially lead to developmental delays in the child and prepare, you know, what we might need to look at. Other things leading to atypical development, abuse or neglect of the mom while she's pregnant or the child while they're an infant or toddler, and obviously later, but we're talking about infant and toddlerhood right now. Physical, psychological, or sexual. I don't need to explain why. Heredity, Down syndrome, spina bifida, hearing loss, and vision impairment can also contribute to atypical development. Now, why do you think that is? Um, you know, not saying that everybody needs to be hearing abled. You know, the deaf community is very independent and, you know, very proud of who they are. There are a lot of people who are deaf who have no desire to be hearing. They have no desire for cochlear implants or anything. Um, But it's important to understand that if a child can't hear, then they may not be exposed to the same sort of stimulation that other children are. And they may, there are a lot of, and they may have more difficulty communicating their wants and needs than another child. Same thing with vision impairment. Cystic fibrosis, muscular dystrophy, Tay-Sachs disease, fragile X, scoliosis, heart defects, and sickle cell anemia are some of the big ones that come out. We do want to be aware. Now, spina bifida, you're going to find out, you know, whether mom had spina bifida. That probably came out in the, um, in the assessment. And we'll have an idea about what's going on. Some of these only occur, you know, they're not necessarily passed down. They occur as a genetic mutation while mom is pregnant. But we need to be aware of what these are if our, our mom finds out that the, the baby has it. Birth complications. Oxygen deprivation greater than three minutes can lead to cerebral palsy and intellectual and motor delays. So that can be because of an umbilical cord, or that can be like my daughter, who chose not to breathe. And I know she didn't choose it, but we joke with her. Uh, For almost seven minutes, they had bagged her, and they were doing CPR on her because she just didn't start breathing. Her brain did not kick in and go, it's time to breathe air. Um, so that can be really scary for parents in the emergency room or in the in the delivery room. And also, if that happens, they do need to be aware of, you know, a little bit more attuned to what's going on and watching for potential delays. Low birth weight, less than 5 pounds, 11 ounces, is often associated with immature lungs and breathing, which can 
reduce the amount of oxygenated blood getting to the brain, which can slow development. Mild to severe cognitive problems, cerebral palsy, delayed speech, and sensory impairments. Wow. So let's think about all the things that cause low birth weight. Poor nutrition, stress, smoking. Those are three big ones. Um, and illicit drug use. So those are four things that, we can, that are preventable, um, largely, for parents. Now, prematurity, sometimes, a lot of times, we don't know why babies are premature. And it's very frustrating for parents who have preemies because we're like, I was going to every visit. I was doing everything I was supposed to do. Why did this happen? Uh, so that's a whole other issue you can work through with parents um, that have preemies. But when a baby is born premature, they're often less than 5 pounds, 11 ounces. Um, so being aware that it could create developmental delays. You know, I was blessed. Sean was uh, 2 pounds, 14 ounces when he was born, and then he dropped a little bit, as babies do, and went on from there. But developmentally, he really never had any problems. Um, Post-term birth can also be a problem. I didn't know that when I went through the course the first time. After 40 weeks, a decrease of amniotic fluid can cause the infant to squeeze the umbilical cord, and his or her extra size can cause difficulty moving, moving through the birth canal, leading to increased risk for oxygen deprivation and head injuries. So after 40 weeks, and it makes sense, I just really hadn't thought about it. You know, it's getting really cramped in there. Birth complications. Prematurity is defined as any birth before 37 weeks, um, and it can lead to respiratory issues, brain bleeds, immature immune systems, deficits in coordination, inattentiveness, and overactiveness. Preterm babies are sometimes irritable, unresponsive, and suck poorly, and this is one of the things we can help parents with because one of those initial bonding things is being able to feed baby. For mom, whether it's nursing or bottle feeding, and for um, dads, obviously, that would be bottle feeding. But we do want to encourage parents to be able to hold and nurture their babies and um, feed them. So when, when babies are having difficulty sucking, it can be very frustrating. The baby gets hungry. The baby gets gassy. And, you know, especially if the baby can't or refuses to nurse, which is often, which often happens in, uh, with premature infants, you know, moms can feel very inept and frustrated with what's going on. And it prevents that initial bonding, that skin-to-skin contact that happens with, with nursing. So we do want to be aware of that with preterm babies and parents to help them address any of these attachment issues that may start coming up. Because of these problems, some parents may become less sensitive and not, not hateful sensitive, but less aware of their, what's going on with their children, less sensitive to the different needs of the child. They may become less interactive and responsive in caring for them, especially those who are very ill or in the NICU at birth. When your child is in the NICU and they're in an incubator, sometimes you can't take them out for days or weeks. Sometimes you can't even touch them because stimulation is too overwhelming to them. And that is just agonizing on the parents, which can make it difficult to even go and visit. But when that attachment doesn't happen 
you know, kind of right away when you don't have that immediate imprinting, it can make it a little bit more um, difficult for parents to uh, bond with them. And again, I have another video on the YouTube channel on working with families in the NICU because it is such an important time, such a crucial time for parents to be able to figure out how do I bond with this little being who has all these tubes and wires and I may not even be able to touch right now. And caregiver interaction. Families with different cultures adopt unique methods for playing with, carrying, feeding, comforting, educating, and socializing their children. So atypical development, and we're not necessarily saying it's harmful. We're just saying it's different than what our bell curve shows, can be different based on culture. Um, Communicating. And and Jennifer raises a good point before we get to communicating, um, is the fact that a lot of times there's a stereotype that babies in the NICU are preemie. And, you know, that's really not true. There are a lot of full-term infants who are there because they've got some sort of medical issue that is having to be dealt with. Anything from, you know, physical problems to being born addicted to drugs of some sort. So we do want to be aware that sometimes it's a full-term infant that's there, and we don't want to just say, well, you know, it's not a premature infant. If the infant is in the NICU, I mean, think about having to go home if you haven't had an infant in the NICU. You have this precious little thing, and you've carried it around for seven, eight, nine months, and, you know, give birth, and then all of a sudden you're discharged. you got to go home and leave the baby back there. And it's a really weird feeling to walk out of the hospital without having your baby in your arms. So we do want to make sure that we attend to parents, regardless of how old their child was at birth or how far along. Um, if they have a child in a NICU, the, there can be some significant attachment issues. Okay, so different cultural differences in parenting. Communicating. All parents communicate in some way, but some cultures use much more verbal communication with their children than others. Others communicate through gestures, facial expressions, and physical touch. So thinking about when you raised your own children, if you had them, um, how much did you talk to them? How much did you use verbal interactions versus how much did you caress them and hold them and make silly faces at them? And that's just a developmental thing. Responses to crying. All parents respond to crying in some way. Some parents respond quickly to cries. Others are less concerned and take longer to act. And this is one of those things that I had to learn when I was working on the mother-baby unit because, you know, when I was, the way I was raised and, and my culture responds quickly to children's cries. Baby's crying, you get up, you do something about it. Um, And some of the women that I was working with, that's not how their culture was. The baby cried. They would finish what they were doing. And eventually they would get over there if the baby was still crying. And it took me a while to kind of wrap my head around the fact that culturally that's how they interact with their infants. And it's not hurt. The infant was not in any danger. Some cultures use cuddling and feeding as a response to crying, which, you know, again, that's what my culture does. 
others use pacifiers or physical stimulation and again some of the women I would work with instead of picking their baby up and holding them and rocking them and doing that kind of stuff they just pop a passy in his mouth and leave again and so that was another thing that took me a little while to understand you know where's the cutoff how long is too long to let a baby cry how how much interaction and cuddling do children need in order to um, in, in order to development develop appropriately all parents are concerned about the education of their children, but some cultures believe that teaching is an important part of the parental role, while others believe teachers and schools are responsible. So up until the child goes to school, no teaching happens. Um, and then they get into kindergarten or preschool, and that's when they start learning their ABCs and one, two, threes. Then there's, you know, another culture that we're playing Sesame Street videos from the time the children are old enough to watch and we're singing Elmo songs and trying to teach different things so it's a cultural cultural difference cognitively these children are going to be at slightly different places if you know one parent has helped them start learning how to you know count by the time they get to, to preschool but it'll even out as they go one's probably not going to be head and shoulders above the other some children oh all parents hold and carry their young children um, some children are bound in slings or cradle boards for much of the day and others are held in their caregivers arms this is another thing I had to learn when I first took over the unit um, I wasn't comfortable with parents putting their children in the swing and leaving them there all day long and I, I never did get comfortable with them leaving them there all day we really needed instituted the fact that the children needed to have some sort of interaction um, but it didn't it had to be 30 minutes it wasn't like all day every day um, so were the children bound in slings there are some cultures as I said earlier who have the baby slings and mom carries that little baby everywhere and everything she does the babies with her and they're bonding you know there is nothing wrong with that but they're also not developing the motor skills that some other children are some children are held infrequently and move about freely in the home or neighborhood so you know just thinking about how that affects social development cognitive development if a child can move about freely they're going to explore more they're probably going to interact with more things and they may start communicating about things a little bit more um, so what leads to developmental or problems with developmental delayed identification certain areas may appear to be delayed yet the child continues to develop typically in other areas so we want to watch you know if they are not sleeping through the night um, but everything else is going fine okay you know maybe that's something that we want to watch if they are not crawling yet you know that may be something to watch if they're from one of the cultures that does that where the mother or, or caregiver carried the baby around a lot and the child wasn't on the floor a lot they may not be crawling as quickly as some of their peers um, so we want to look at all of the other areas and see is the child thriving is does the child seem to be able to do the things that they're supposed to do at this age 
Variations in children's achievement exists, as well as uneven maturation and constantly changing conditions in the child's environment. So we got to remember, a lot of these tables that they put out are based on the ideal situation, the ideal upbringing, the most enriched environment, not necessarily what happens. Sometimes there are going to be periods where it might be less than ideal because of changing conditions. Maybe um, the little baby has to go stay with um, a different caregiver for six months because his other caregiver had to go somewhere. I don't know. Um, But we need to pay attention to that because when caregivers change or even when teachers at daycare change, that may impact the child because each teacher is going to interact with the child a little bit differently. Parenting patterns differ significantly across cultures as well as perception of developmental milestones. So we want to look at the developmental milestones that are culturally appropriate. You know, we have our idea of what's, quote, normal or average or whatever you want to say, but that's for our culture. In this person's culture, what is typical? Delays may not be immediately noticed, um, like vision and hearing loss. You know, those are one of those things that you may not really realize because how do you know when an infant can't hear very well or can't hear? My daughter's um, 80% deaf in one ear. You know, she could hear from the other ear, so we didn't really pick up on that until she was a lot older. Health problems that can affect the children's performance are also sometimes intermittent. Ear infections. I know when I was little, I had ear infections like every month. And when you have ear infections, it makes you feel bad. It keeps you from going to daycare and interacting with other children. Um, It's painful. It keeps you from hearing as much. It slows down cognitive development because you're not up and moving around and engaging. So something as simple as chronic ear infections can also lead to certain developmental delays. So signs, we keep talking about them. What are they? If by the end of one month, the infant doesn't startle to loud noises, suck or swallow easily, and and we're talking about one-month developmental age, not chronological age, make eye contact with the caregiver or cease crying when being held. Now, those are pretty vague things right now. How loud does the noise need to be and how much does the baby need to startle? And we don't really want to test it. That's kind of cruel. Sucking or swallowing, we want them to be able to get food in. Now, if they can't suck very well, um, when even when my son left the hospital, when he would start eating and sucking a lot, um, he would forget to breathe, and then his heart rate would drop. And he never did get the hang, and I think it was because he was fed through a tube for so long. Um, he never get, did get the hang of patience and sucking. So we used a juice nipple from the get-go. Now, he could down some food, let me tell you what. So he had swallowing down with no problem, but sucking, he just never really got the hang of. Um, And if they don't make eye contact with the caregiver, that could be a sign, early sign of autism, or it could be an early sign that the child is overwhelmed by the parent's presence, and there could be something else going on there. It also could be that the child can't see. So we need to investigate some of these things. Um, and and um, one of you points out that you realize that your son wasn't hearing because he could sleep through his twin sister's screaming. Um, and 
that's true. We want to look at some of these things. Now, my son, on the other hand, if it was quiet, he didn't sleep because when he was in the NICU, there were all these beeping and buzzing for, you know, so long. That's what he had gotten used to. So an atomic bomb could pretty much go off in our house and nothing would wake that child. Um, He didn't have any hearing problems. He had just adapted to it. So, you know, if the child sleeps through it, you want to check it out and figure out, is this a hearing problem or is this something that child has habituated to? And encourage parents not to freak out the first time that a child doesn't startle or something. Uh, But yes, being aware and attentive means the child can get early intervention services as early as possible. If by the end of four months, oh, and cease crying when held. Let me just stop on that one, too. Some parents can feel very inadequate if they can't get their child to sleep, uh, to stop crying. Most of us have had experiences where our children have been colicky. Um, my son had gastric reflux really bad. And I was talking to my, my, one of my good friends, and her son also had gastric reflux. And that was just trajectory vomiting with all the stomach acid coming up. And they would scream and be in such pain and be so inconsolable. Um, now, is that a developmental delay? No. But could it have progressed to one? Yes, because the poor kids weren't able to sleep if when they laid down, the stomach acid was coming back up on them. Um, so it's not necessarily an impact on the, a reflection of what's going on with the parent. And it's not necessarily a reflection of a developmental delay. It could be a reflection of something that may lead to a developmental delay if it's not treated. We also want to be, be aware if by the end of four months, the infant doesn't socially smile, track moving objects, you know, the cat, anything, turn, head, turn their head towards sound, reach out, or raise their head while on their stomach. So a lot of children are even sitting, you know, supported by four months. But if a child is not, you know, raising their head while on their stomach, you know, as long as they're doing that by the end of four months, you know, it's probably good. If by the end of eight months the infant doesn't explore with their hands, look for hidden objects, pick up objects using a pincher grist, pincher grasp, sit unaided, and appear interested in new or unusual sounds. So this this gives us an idea. And, you know, like like, um, Lisa was was pointing out, you know, her son could sleep through the twins crying. With Haley, we started to recognize that if a sound was made on one side, she was attentive to it. But if the sound was made on the other side, not so much. And that gave us a little bit of a clue so we, to take her into the audiologist. If by the end of 12 months, the infant doesn't independently pull to a standing position, crawl, repeat simple sounds, have an interest in looking at pictures, respond yes or no to simple questions, show an understanding of new words, or attempt to feed themselves. Now, again, you know, as I shared earlier, Sean wasn't really saying yes or no at this age. He would shake his head or you know, nod or, or do whatever, but he wasn't really interested in vocalizing, but he was doing most of those other things, and he would occasionally repeat other sounds and gurgle and, you know, do those things, so I knew he could make sounds. He just wasn't talking. He wasn't interested in communicating that way at that point. 
he was very good at feeding himself and whenever he wanted food he would tell me he wanted more um so you know those are things to look look at look at the big scheme of things um just like when we make diagnoses for depression you know if somebody has low energy and that's their only symptom well it's probably not clinical depression we want to look and see if the lion's share of issues are there if by the end of 24 months the child should be able to identify familiar objects enjoy listening to someone reading to them and walk even with little tumbles or falls again enjoying listening to somebody reading to them may or may not happen part of it depends on the book that's being chosen and we all know that we've listened to people who read to us that or talk or lecture or whatever and we're just it's like fingernails down a blackboard we're either bored out of our mind or we can't stand to listen to it so we want to look is is it this one person the child doesn't like sitting still with or is it they can't sit still in circle time ever and if by the end of 36 months the child doesn't begin the process of toilet training show signs of empathy and caring generally figure out how to undress themselves not dress but undress and speak with 75% intelligibility and these are going to be small words we're not talking about have having a discourse but we should be able to at least generally understand what they're saying because if their sounds are slurred together or not formed well if their phonics are bad it could indicate that they're having a hearing difficulty Early interventionists assist the child and family in having the best outcome. We work to reduce stressors in the child, the parents and the siblings because it can get really rough in the family when a particular sibling has some developmental or delays or physical disabilities. So some of us go, well, but I only work with adults. Well, that's true, maybe. But caregivers are adults and it's important to help them cope with the stressors that come with having a child let alone a child that may have a developmental disability grieve if the child has some sort of a disability or delay because it's not what they had anticipated and some parents feel very guilty for feeling the need to grieve that but it's just the vision that you had is no more and you know some parents work through that really quickly some parents it takes a little bit longer partly because they may, may may blame themselves and we help them manage the partner relationship effective developmental issues on the child remember that many children exhibit multiple impairments and there are differences in what happens due to personal stamina cognitive abilities and self esteem um and this will create different outcomes for children with the same multiple disabilities so you may have a child who is um has a cognitive delay as well as a um verbal communication delay and you may have two children that have those same issues but one does significantly better than the other one and there's a lot of different reasons for that so children who have sensory impairments may have difficulty identifying the sources of sounds they may have difficulty picking up on things that um will help them learn to communicate if they can't hear the sounds they they're going to have difficulty speaking the words they may have difficulty listening in a noisy environment because they can't filter it out they may have language or speech delays lack coordination they may have decreased muscle tone leading in 
to delays in gross motor skills. And this is, when we're talking about sensory delays, we're not talking about just vision and hearing. Um, but if they can't see or they can't see well, they may not be as likely to locomote, if that's even a word, um, to move about, which means they may not develop the same kind of gross motor skills as another child of that age. They could also have other sensory integration issues. They may have delayed fine motor skills, and this is more of a sensory integration thing. Um, delays in self-feeding. Some children, and Sean had this issue, when he would try to, when you would try to put a spoon in his mouth, instead of being able to accept the food, his tongue would automatically push it out. So we had to work with him on getting that whole you know, solid food thing down. And delay in social interaction and development of play can happen if there are sensory impairments. If the child can't he, hear or see the same thing that his or her peers hear or see, it can be um, difficult for them to interact, so they may be more withdrawn. Chronic illnesses can lead to delayed growth because they're not eating as much as they should. Lack of stamina because they're in bed a lot. Loss of strength because they're not out playing and doing the things that other kids their age are doing. I guess crawling at this age. Malnutrition, again, a lot of times because either their body can't absorb the food because they've got Crohn's or something, or because they're just not wanting to eat because they can't taste anything. You know how it is when you get a bad cold. Respiratory problems, socialization concerns, and diminished immune system. Um, and preemies are at especially high risk of getting a certain virus called RSV, which impacts their lungs and causes a lot of ongoing respiratory problems throughout their, their childhood or can. And genetic syndromes can cause language delays, maturation delays, and cognitive deficiencies. Cognitive delays can cause decreased learning abilities, you know, if they're having difficulty processing and thinking. And it can cause problems in working memory, distractibility, poor judgment, deficiencies in processing information, inflexibility, and inability of the brain to control muscle function. So we want to look at, you know, cognitively what level, if you will, or what stage is this child at. But thinking about it, if a child has decreased learning abilities, and, and let's take them to, you know, preschool. You know, they're 18, 24 months old, and they're starting daycare or whatever you call it, it where, where you are. If they have decreased learning ability, they're not going to be necessarily engaging in the same tasks or able to do the same tasks that their peers are. So they may fall back a little bit because their peers are doing this stuff and they don't know how. Um, it can also limit socialization if they don't have the same general interests. You know, they don't like playing with balls and they don't like playing dress up or whatever. They're not walking yet. It can prevent socialization. It can prevent a lot of um, physical activity. If they're not wanting to join with peers, they're probably just going to, they're often going to sit there um, or, or lay there or, or do whatever. So we want to look at how is this particular type of delay affecting any other areas of social development and their ability to take care of themselves. And motor deficits can lead to difficulty in muscle control and coordination, lack of bladder and bowel control, 
a loss of a sense of balance, which can also be caused by chronic ear infections, digression of motor skills, loss of equilibrium, and disordered interpretation of tactile stimulation, which is a really big way of saying they may not be able to f- understand what they're teach, uh, touching. Sean, when he was uh, a baby, for his first birthday, we put ribbons on all of his presents and, you know, so he could have things to tear into. He touched the ribbon and it was like an electric shock went through his entire body and he shuddered from head to toe and then he started to cry and he was terrified of bows henceforth and forevermore. So he touched this thing that was not, you know, harmful at all. It didn't cut him or anything. And, but his body's response to it, the sensory messages he got were very disconcerting to him for whatever reason. And, you know, we were very lucky that that was the only thing he had an issue with tactile uh, stimulation. But when he did touch that, so he avoided anything that looked like ribbons and bows forever. It actually took us a while to get him to tie his shoes because those were bows too. What, how does a developmental delay affect the family though? So we've been talking about what to look for in the child and the fact that one, um, one issue can impact develop, delay in all the other areas. But what impact does it have on the family? Well, you know, a lot. So we need to recognize the family's strengths and empower them to meet the needs of the child as well as themselves, you know, because we can be attending to little Johnny all day long and trying to get his needs met. But if we're not meeting everybody's needs in the family, something's going to give. We need to be respectful of cultural differences and religious beliefs about the meaning of the disability. You know, it may be seen as a punishment from God. It may be seen as a trial. You know, we have to ask what that means to the family. We need to be aware that the needs of family members often go unnoticed or unfulfilled due to the heavy demand of meeting the basic needs of the child with the disability in the household. When Sean was in early intervention services, it was exhausting. We had an in-home therapist three days a week. We had physical therapy one day a week. We had occupational therapy one day a week. Um, So five days a week, we were at some sort of doctor therapy appointment. Now, he was my first. So, you know, that was a blessing because I didn't have other children that were going, uh, when are you going to have time for me? Um, But you can see how this could quickly get very overwhelming for any parent, and especially parents who can't not work. If they have to go back to work when the baby is six weeks old, it can be very overwhelming. And a lot of times early intervention specialists will actually go into daycares and work with the child there. Um, Isolation is one issue that families face. Parents may have depression, grief, and guilt over what's going on with this child. They may may feel like, like it's somehow their fault. Grandparents may not understand the diagnosis or may even place blame on one of the parents. You know, if you would have played with her more, if you would have done this, then the child wouldn't have this delay. Friends of the family may feel awkward or uncomfortable in the presence of the child or lack words for consolation and stay away. So if the child has spina bifida or cerebral palsy or something, um, it can also impact Um, friends who are just not sure what to say when they're like, okay, wow, you know, the child has a disability. 
And babysitters may also be hard to find due to the need for a more skilled professional sitter. Um, our farrier has a teenager now who, with cerebral palsy. And, you know, they can't just have any old teenager down the street come watch their child. So, you know, it's important to recognize that parents become, it's harder for parents to be able to get any respite when the child has a significant disability. Siblings often have mixed feelings about their siblings with disabilities. Some children may feel guilty that they're able-bodied and their sibling isn't. Some may worry that they may contract the disability. And others may feel less cared for or loved and even resentful due to the time and care required for the child with the disability. Now, if you have two children who are twins and one has a disability and the other one doesn't, you know, obviously you may end up inadvertently spending more time focusing on the child with the developmental delay or the disability and the other one may not get as much attention so we need to you know be cognizant of that there's time and physical demands because it takes a lot more time to do anything if you've got a child with certain developmental delays or physical delays the children child may need special meals or physical assistance and getting to um, appropriate therapies. There's also a challenge with finding appropriate childcare. With Haley, after she got RSV, the pediatrician strongly advised that I quit my job and keep her home and not put her in daycare until she was two. And, you know, that was a huge stressor on our family, but it was in the best interest of Haley, and, you know, thankfully we were able to pull it off. But it can be really challenging. Financial issues like hospital bills, affording assistive devices, home renovations if the child is in a wheelchair, transportation that's wheelchair accessible, and job loss because of needing to stay there to take care of the child can all culminate on the family. Effects on parents. Parents have less time for each other. You know, a baby in and of them in and of themselves are a lot, it's a lot of a time commitment. But if the child has a developmental delay and they're needing to go to appointments and things and they're needing extra meals and they're needing specialized services and you need to do therapy activities with them each day, then parents can have even less time with one another. There can be some blaming and guilt for things that happen. There can be difficulty with service providers. And, you know, when you disagree with what the pediatrician says or the recommendations that were made, it can cause conflict between the parents. And just the normal postpartum stuff is exhausting. Getting used to a child who, having a new baby in the house, developmental delay or not, that's not sleeping through the night. Nobody's sleeping well. And it can be trying. So there are some other videos, if you're interested in this, that will augment what we're going to go through in this series on our YouTube channel um, that's all CEUs education. Milestones of child development. And then I have three videos, Child Development 101, on infancy, toddlers, and the elementary years. And then I have a fifth one, fourth, fifth one, on parenting skills. And this is really to help educate parents, you know, your teen parents or your parents who they're like, I don't have a manual. I have no idea how to handle this. Um, so some skills and tips and tools that we might be able to 
pass on to them. So those videos are available at allceus.com slash YouTube. If you go there, then it'll take you right to the YouTube channel. So child development has a general course that can be impacted by prenatal factors, parenting and cultural factors, environmental factors. You know, if the environment is scary and threatening all the time and the child is constantly in pain or cold or, you know, whatever, they're not going to develop the same as a child who was in a warm, loving, nurturing environment. Genetic factors play a role, as well as other bi biological issues, such as traumatic brain injury from birth. And sometimes little, little children can take significant spills and have um, a TBI or be in a car accident. Even if they're strapped into their car seat, it can impact their brain. They can get a virus or chronic ear infection, for example. Um, when working with parents, we need to be sensitive to culture regarding the meaning of the disability, their parenting practices, and what interventions will be effective with that family, because we do need to be culturally responsive. Developmental delays in one area impact the child in multiple areas, and the developmental delays in the child impact the family which can result in need for support for ancillary issues. Like, like I said, if mom has to quit her job or dad has to quit his job in order to stay home and be a full-time caregiver, that could impact the family financially, which could add extra stress. Atypical development describes children whose differences in development are to a marked degree different or whose development appears to be significantly inconsistent with, quote, normal child development. The developmental domains that we want to look at are physical, because as a child can move, then they can start dressing and, and themselves, they can start feeding themselves, and they can start interacting with others. Cognitive, because this helps them develop object permanence and think about things and get curious. Social and emotional, you know, as they develop, they will develop the ability to, you know, hopefully identify and, and regulate their own emotions a little bit. If they can't, it's going to make it more difficult to be, um, to develop relationships. They'll develop the ability to communicate. And if they can't communicate, then they may get frustrated, which can negatively impact their social development. And potentially, they may withdraw and not get as much physical and cognitive stimulation. And then self-help and adaptive domains are all of those with, that pertain to basically getting control of your own body pulling yourself up to start to walk, um, you know, asking for food, doing those sorts of things. We want to identify developmental signals that indicate a possible developmental delay or problem from birth to three years of age. Now, obviously, other things can happen later, but we're just focusing on birth to three right now because we can intervene and there's so much that can be done to prevent huge problems later by getting the right assistance early on. Three things that make it difficult to pinpoint a possible delay include chronic health problems, parenting patterns that are culturally different, and normal development in the other areas. So the pediatrician may be going, well, this is the only thing that seems off, so there's no problem. And the parent's going, um, no, there's a problem. I always tell parents to trust their gut. And, you know, if they feel like there's a problem, maybe get a second opinion from a different pediatrician. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe either in your podcast player or on YouTube.
If you want to attend and participate in our live webinars with Dr. Snipes, you can subscribe at https colon slash slash allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. This episode has been brought to you in part by allceus.com, providing 24-7 multimedia continuing education and pre-certification training to counselors, therapists, and nurses since 2006. You can use coupon code COUNSELORTOOLBOX to get 20% off of your current order. If you're a podcast listener, especially on an Apple device, it would be extremely helpful if you would review Counselor Toolbox. To do this on your Apple device, go to the podcast app, search for Counselor Toolbox, select the icon for the podcast, tap the Reviews tab in the middle. You should then see an option to click Write a Review. We love to see five-star reviews, so if there's anything we can do to make this podcast even better for you, please email us at support at allceus.com.